1: The slow wheels of justice start turning. The lead starts right now. The five former Memphis police officers charged with killing Tyree Nichols are arraigned, all entering pleas of not guilty.
2: I want each and every one of those police officers to be able to look me in the face. They they haven't done that yet.
1: And now the district attorney is reviewing dozens of other cases connected to those officers. Plus, in the middle of the January 6th insurrection, then President Donald Trump did not call the secretary of defense, the attorney general, or the head of Homeland Security. Wait until you hear who he did call. Then the proposal in a mostly black city to put unelected white officials in charge of handpicking some of the city's judges and prosecutors. Will it create a separate justice system for blacks and whites in Mississippi's capital? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Brianna Keeler and for Jake Tapper, and we're starting in the National Lead. Five former Memphis police officers charged with murder in the death of Tyree Nichols in court today, where they all pleaded not guilty. To Darius Bean, Demetrius Haley, Justin Smith, Emmett Martin III, and Desmond Mills Jr., Base up to 60 years in prison if convicted. They were all members of the police department's Scorpion unit, which was launched in 2021 to combat rising violent crime in Memphis. But after the death of Nichols, the unit was permanently disbanded. And today, the district attorney announced he's reviewing as many as 100 previous cases involving that Scorpion unit and the officers involved. CNN's Shimon Prokupas starts off our coverage from Memphis, where Tyree Nichols' family spoke after today's hearing.
2: They didn't even have the courage Mm. to look at me in my face.
3: An emotional day in Memphis where the five former police officers charged with murdering Tyree Nichols appeared in court together in front of the Nichols family for the first time. Not guilty. Not guilty. All five pleaded not guilty to charges of second degree murder, aggravated assault, aggravated kidnapping, official misconduct and official oppression. Judge James Jones addressing the courtroom emphasizing this case could take time.
4: We understand that there may be some uh, high emotions in this case but we ask that you continue to uh, be patient with us.
3: After the arraignment attorneys for the officers began to reveal how their defense
5: will take shape. Tedarius Bean was doing his job at that time and he never and he never struck him. And there has been no, no, no information that we have seen as of right now that indicates that there's a, that, that there's any sort of information that that we can rely on to say that it's murder.
3: Another defense attorney invoking his client's race and warning not to rush to judgment. Let's not forget that my client is a black man in a courtroom in America. This is a country
0: where. Black people are incarcerated at five times the rate of white people. Much has been said about the ways that the system has failed Mr. Nichols. I will work tirelessly
3: to make sure that the system does not fail Mr. Mills. For Tyree Nichols' mother, relief that this legal process has begun, but the pain of her loss is clear.
2: I know my son is gone. I know I'll never see him again. But we have to start this process
3: of justice right now. The Shelby County District Attorney saying his office is reviewing up to 100 prior cases involving the now disbanded Scorpion unit. 75 of those cases related to the five officers charged in Nichols' death. The clearest sign yet that more justice could come to the city of Memphis.
6: We'll be making decisions about charges regarding all those people in 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 the time ahead.
3: And so, Brianna, you heard the DA there. The thing is that they now need to go back in at least 100 cases to look at those cases where these officers were involved in and potentially dismiss some of these cases. The fact is that these officers can never be used as witnesses now. So that's going to present a, a pretty serious problem here for the DA, who's now reviewing all of these cases. And it could grow. The number of cases that need to be reviewed could grow, Brianna.
1: All right. We'll be watching Shimon Procupes in Memphis. Thank you for that report. And also in our national lead today, moments ago, prosecutors in Los Angeles announcing federal hate crime charges against a man suspected of shooting two Jewish people this week. CNN's Josh Campbell is in Los Angeles for us. Josh, tell us about these charges.
0: Yeah, Brianna, significant development here. This suspect who was arrested last night, accused of shooting two people here in West L.A., has been criminally charged by the federal government with hate crimes. Prosecutors say in this complaint uh, that this suspect, Jamie Tran, had searched on social media for the location of kosher uh, markets here in the area. They say that he admitted to targeting his victims because of their headgear. Authorities also say that he had a history of anti-Semitic attacks. Again, he stands accused of coming here this week in West L.A terrorizing this community. I heard like a pop, pop, pop. A drive-by shooting. One of two Jewish men hit by gunfire just blocks apart in Los Angeles this week. This man hit in the arm. Both victims were walking home from places of worship when they were shot by a man from inside his car. They were both hospitalized and in stable condition after the shootings. Police have now arrested a suspect in both shootings and say the alleged shooter was in possession of a rifle and a handgun. Hate crimes have no place in our community. Anti-Semitism has no place in our community. The FBI has launched its own investigation focused on possible hate crimes and domestic terrorism charges.
7: If we do not prosecute these cases as federal crimes, they will continue to fester because they will be viewed as excused.
0: Anti-Semitic violence is rising across the country. Attacks reached an all-time high in 2021, up 34 percent from the year before, according to the Anti-Defamation League.
7: In many ways, anti-Semitism is sort of like the canary in the coal mine. It's telling us about something in society and about the hate in society.
0: The attacks in Los Angeles follow last week's edition of hate crimes charges in a San Francisco case against a man who allegedly fired a replica gun inside a Bay Area synagogue. And two other cases in recent months, where one suspect is charged with throwing a Molotov cocktail at a synagogue in New Jersey. In Los Angeles, Mayor Karen Bass tells CNN a citywide effort is underway to protect the community.
2: The reality is, is that if it happens to one group, it can happen to anybody. If it's a danger to one, it's a danger to all. The only way to stop hate is for all of us to be united and stamp it out.
0: In Los Angeles, the LAPD is ramping up patrols in the area near the shootings. I am mean, sure should be a good hands, so yeah. I'm going to pay for that. But some community members are still living in fear.
3: Not going to let our kids go to shul this weekend, and definitely scared to have them wear their keepas to look Jewish.
0: Now, Brianna, this 28-year-old suspect remains in federal custody. CNN is attempting to identify attorney information to get comment on these federal hate crime charges. As you read through this complaint, some of these allegations that the federal government makes, Brianna, it's nothing short of disgusting. Some of the language that he uses against Jewish people in the United States, the FBI accuses him of actually emailing classmates and blaming Jews for a litany of problems, saying that they're to blame for, quote, lost revenue after the uh, COVID-19 pandemic saying that people should kill Jews. This is exactly what federal law enforcement and security research researchers have been warning about, that there are people out there that are espousing this hate, particularly in light of this increase in anti-Semitic attacks, that there could be people out there predisposed to violence. This appears to be someone, at least according to these, this complaint and according to his alleged admission, who's someone who was clearly anti-Semitic and came here, here in West L.A. wreaking havoc to this community, Brianna.
1: All right, Josh Campbell live for us in Los Angeles. Thank you. I do want to bring in CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller now to talk more about this, because, John, we heard in Josh's report there just this kind of litany of recent events that appeared to target, uh, target Jewish people, a man firing a replica gun inside a synagogue in the Bay Area, a man allegedly throwing a Molotov cocktail at a synagogue in New Jersey, a man assaulted in New York City and what police say was an anti-Semitic attack in December. How does law enforcement address this?
8: Well, law enforcement is addressing this uh, full on. Um, you know, in New York City, they have the uh, religious and ethnically motivated extremist squad within the Intelligence Bureau. Um, in Los Angeles, where uh, I was uh, the chief of the uh, Intelligence and Counterterrorism Bureau for several years, you have a very tight-knit J- Jewish community, uh, tight-knit leadership uh, that are very closely in contact with the police on security issues, particularly in this case. uh, They were in contact minute by minute. But what you see is a different model today, which is these aren't groups that are meeting in the basement of somebody's house and plotting attacks. These are groups that are meeting on apps like Telegram um, and Signal and other message boards. Uh, They may not even be in the same city. They are trading documents. I'm reviewing uh, one of the documents that uh, came across lately. It has a swastika on the front and a a gun with a silencer. But deeper in the document, it says, target Jewish groups, target Jewish think tanks, gas them, shoot them. It's got a sniper's target on a leader from a prominent Jewish group. So this is a virulent and bad discussion um, that's going on. And because we live in a First Amendment environment, this kind of talk... Um, isn't in and of itself a crime, uh, as we saw in this case. Once that translates to action, then you can move in and bring criminal charges.
1: You see how it's enabling and encouraging some of these, including in, in Los Angeles, it appears that may have been an aspect of this. I do want to ask you about Memphis because we also just heard The D.A. says he's now investigating up to 100 cases involving this Scorpion unit, including most of the cases involving officers who have been charged here. Uh, What are they looking for when it comes to these cases, and what do you think could come of this?
8: Well, they're looking for two or three things, depending on how you view it. Number one, they're looking for cases where people may have been uh, beaten or abused uh, or assaulted where that just didn't come up in the case because they may have gone quickly to a guilty plea. Number two, they're looking at at cases where people may say, these officers lied. There is now a record of them being charged with lying. I was convicted uh, or pled guilty because of the idea that they were going to testify against me, but now we know they had no credibility. Uh, So they may set aside convictions in the interest of justice. Um, And then there are other cases where they may have arrested someone with a gun, where it's on body camera, where their testimony um, was not particularly relevant to the case, where those cases may stand. But they've got to sort through all of them if any of these officers were connected.
1: Yeah, we're seeing the ripple effects uh, of the arrests of these officers. John Miller, thank you so much. We appreciate it. And ahead, the court documents that reveal private conversations between some of the biggest names at Fox and executives of the network deeming it irresponsible to put Trump on the air on January 6th. First though, Russia's invasion in Ukraine is about to reach the one year mark. The important interview today with CNN that may signal a significant timeline on this war. Topping our world lead, analysts predict it's unlikely that Russia will capture the key eastern city of Bakhmut by next week's one-year mark of Putin's brutal, unprovoked war on Ukraine. Still, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky wants to be well-armed and ready for anything, appealing to Western leaders today with this urgent message.
6: We need to hurry up. We need the speed, speed of our agreements, speed of our delivery.
1: CNN chief international anchor Christian Amanpour sat down with Germany's chancellor Olaf Schultz at the Munich Security Conference. And Christian, it certainly seemed that he shared Zelensky's urgency.
9: Yes, he shared the urgency, Biana, and he also shared the fact that there has to be unity maintained in year two of this war and that it may go on for quite a while. This is what he said on stage after his speech. You in your speech said we have to be ready for the long haul. I mean, you must strategize. You must think amongst yourselves how long this could last. Do you have a target date?
7: I think it is wise to, to be prepared for a long war, And it is wise to give Putin the message that we are ready to st- stay all the time together with Ukraine and that we will con- constantly support the country. So it is not really a very good idea that in this conference or at this podium the two of us discuss the question when exactly in which months this war will end. The really important decision we should take all together is saying that uh, we are willing to do it as long as necessary and that we will do our best.
9: Yes, you can't put a target date for a month, but the question was because Zelensky himself addressing the conference said this war needed to be over this year. So, you know, there's a little bit of a difference in terms of urgency and speed, I think. One of the really difficult issues is that the West has essentially admitted that they just do not have, at the moment, the production capacity to replenish the rapidly dwindling stockpiles of ammunition, because this war is just using so much. Certainly the Ukrainians are firing many, many shells um, every day. So this is a real challenge, and that's what all the defense ministers are talking about now, how to ramp up um, the, the, the armaments industry, really, the procurement industry, because the Secretary General of NATO said that while maybe in the past it would have taken 12 months between placing orders and receiving them, now it's 28 months. And that is time that they simply cannot afford. Uh, and finally, of course, Olaf Scholz is coming to Washington. He'd be meeting with President Biden. There was a huge American delegation here led by Kamala Harris and Congress, people from both houses, both, both parties. And there's a lot of show of force from the Americans, too, on sticking by Ukraine's side. As we're approaching this anniversary, this
1: terrible anniversary in Ukraine. Chris John, thank you so much reporting from Munich. We appreciate it. And not only do new court documents reveal how Fox anchors really felt about former President Trump's election lies, now we're also learning what executives at the network refused to do for Trump as the January 6th Capitol riots unfolded. During the January 6th Capitol attack, former President Donald Trump notably did not call his Secretary of Defense, the Attorney General or the Secretary of Homeland Security. Now we've learned Trump did try to call Lou Dobbs. At Fox, that is according to new court filings released from Dominion Voting Systems' $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox. New text messages also reveal how several big names at the network really felt about Trump and those pushing his 2020 voter fraud claims. Sean Hannity at one point texting that Rudy Giuliani was, quote, acting like an insane person. Laura Ingram texting, Rudy, such an idiot. And in one message, founder uh, Rupert Murdoch calling Trump's lies, quote, really crazy stuff. CNN's Oliver Darcy is here on this. So, Oliver, let's start with Trump trying to call into Fox during the Capitol attack. What do we know about this phone call?
6: That's exactly right. According to this Dominion filing, which has so much information behind the scenes of what took place at Fox during uh, the aftermath of the election... Uh, According to the filing, Trump tried calling into Lou Dobbs' show. Lou Dobbs was someone who was spreading a lot of election conspiracy theories and couldn't get put on the phone with Dobbs because Fox executives vetoed this. This is according to testimony Dominion cites from the Fox business uh, president who said that it would be irresponsible on January 6th to have allowed Trump to go on the network and uh, spread his election lies.
1: And these text messages, what can you tell us?
6: I mean, they are so, so damning. It really reveals that behind the scenes, Fox executives, people like Rupert Murdoch, uh, as well as Fox News hosts, people like Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingraham, they were privately acknowledging and frankly mocking a lot of the Trump election lies that were being spread. But this never made its way to the audience. They never shared this with the audience. In fact, As recently as yesterday, you have Tucker Carlson going on air and sowing doubt about the validity of the 2020 election. And so it really shows that behind the scenes, Fox News hosts, Fox News executives are saying one thing, and then they're going in front of the camera and saying something completely different to their audience, seemingly in search of profit or power or whatever it may be. But it's really quite reprehensible, Brianna.
1: Yeah, telling their audience what they think their audience wants to hear and not what those hosts believe and know to be true. Oliver, thank you so much. And I want to talk about this now with our panel. You know, Abby, uh, people knew who Donald Trump had not called during the January 6th riot. But this uh, this uh, attempt to make sort of uh, an appearance on Fox, this wasn't known about.
2: Yeah, that, that is the fascinating part about this. Our colleague Annie Grayer says that her sources on the January 6th committee said that they didn't know that Trump had attempted to call into Fox News, and there's been so much attention about what was he doing in those hours when the Capitol was breached, and now we know. I mean, imagine what could have happened if instead of uh, his aides really twisting his arm to put out, uh, you know, a statement on Twitter and a video trying to maybe get those people out of the Capitol, he'd called in to Fox Business and egged them on. I think we could be looking at a very different scenario here. And the fact that uh, Trump was seemingly censored by even Fox on that day really undermines uh, the conservative argument that. These technology companies like Twitter and Facebook were totally off base in worrying what Trump could do with his platform after, on and after January 6th.
10: And this is really just the latest in a series of things we've learned. Because we know those Fox hosts that afternoon were uh, texting Mark Meadows and urging the White House to do something. Sean Hannity did it repeatedly. Laura Ingraham did as well. So what this really has done is kind of uh, answer the question that many of us who have known some of these hosts for a long time have been wondering, do they really believe what they're saying? And they don't. That uh, certainly is a question for Tucker Carlson. You know, He certainly has had many stripes over the years, but this uh, sort of laying bare to all of this. But the reality is those hosts from the very beginning, when they were seeing those images, they were trying to get the White House to stop him, and then it just uh, went on from but there. But I think
11: we know something even more sinister, which is that profits were put over the truth, right? They believed, and they were more concerned in many of those texts with the stock price. You see texts talking about we're losing audience share to Newsmax. They were more concerned about that than trying to say, how do we help our audience understand the truth of what's actually happening? And then the fact that they went after people who actually tried to do fact-checking and tried to get those people fired. Again, profitability over
4: telling the truth. To, to me, what this shows is, is the emperor has no clothes, and this is just like the modern version of that. Everyone was focused on the fact that Trump was president, and trying to stay, you know, in his good graces, in his orbit, when in reality the ice cube was melting and Trump had lost the election and voters were searching for more information. And I would have liked to have seen, uh, you know, a, a lot more un, unbiased reporting from Fox where they were more focused on what was actually happening and whether whether or not these claims were true instead of just carrying the, carrying this information.
1: Because they knew, right? So they could have provided that. That's yeah. what, right. we've, what Absolutely. we've learned. I'm curious what you guys think about how this information could play out at a moment, say, during a Republican debate. I mean, what would that look like? You would expect that Donald Trump would be asked, hey, you know, during January 6th, you didn't call your defense secretary or your homeland security secretary, but you were calling Fox News.
4: Trump has a problem. Look, in 2016, when he ran, he he didn't have a record. So he got to be the disruptor. He got to be the outsider. And he didn't have a record to run on. In in 2020, he just got the party's nomination. So we haven't seen, you know, in round three, we're going to see Trump have to defend his record in a Republican primary. And I think he's going to have to answer questions like these and also questions about many, many other decisions he made. And I think a lot of that is not going to wear well with the base. And I think there's an awful lot of fodder for Nikki Haley and, and whoever else jumps in to, to really thing, pounce on him. I think
2: we should remember, though, is that the reason that Fox in this context was afraid of, uh, you know, These election lies and telling the truth about it is because the audience was demanding it. They wanted it. And even to this day, a lot of Republicans, they may be tired of Trump, but a lot of them still believe these lies. And so to your question about what happens on a presidential debate stage... Uh, they're going to be trying to make the case against Trump without disavowing Trumpism, because this stuff right now, I think, is pretty baked in in the Re- Republican electorate. Huge swaths of the Republican base believe this to be true, and I don't think that there is a Republican candidate who has the chance of winning the nomination who who uh, can really say what we know to be true, which is that all of this is false. It was made up. Which is why you
11: know Trump would probably lean right into it and say, "I was trying to call to." Make sure people knew the truth, and they and look what they did to me. They would, right, He would go as he always does to being, you know, calling himself the victim of the media elites. Um, and again, he because he knows that he has that one third of that base that will always believe him, that will be with him. And I think one of the things we're going to see play itself out in the 2024 primary is when is the point? Who creates the permission structure? For those voters who might say, I'm still loyal to Trump, but I think it's time for someone else. Somebody's going to have to help create that bridge for those voters.
1: Doesn't that just reinforce, though, what in the general election, what we've learned from the midterms, right? Doesn't that just reinforce what general election voters don't like about Trumpism, what they've rejected? Sure, absolutely.
10: And that is why... Um, one of the things that worries Republican leaders more than anything is what has happened over the, the popular vote for the last uh, seven or eight elections. As Nikki Haley pointed out this week, Republicans have lost the popular vote seven out of the eight le- presidential election. So that is sort of the question hanging over all this. But this is a defamation lawsuit. This is only the very beginning of what we're learning. We're going to learn a lot more. As Oliver was reporting, uh, much of that um, information was a redacted. So we're going to learn a ton. So who knows if they will win that defamation lawsuit. But by the end of this, we will learn a ton. And it's hard to imagine that at least some heads might not roll at Fox. Uh, it's a very precarious uh, situation for them and the family.
1: It, we've already learned a ton. Um, I do want right. to ask you, Abby, Rick Scott actually amended his Rescue America plan after President Biden criticized Ameri- uh, Republicans for trying to sunset all federal legislation after five years, including Social Security and Medicare. The new language now makes an exception for Social Security, Medicare national security veterans benefits and other essential services. And Rick Scott also includes this reading, quote, note to President Biden, Senator Schumer and Senator McConnell. As you know, this was never intended to apply to Social Security, Medicare or the U.S. Navy. I'm not so sure that that is accurate there, but uh, what do you make of him changing his plan? It's hard not to draw a direct line to the State of the Union address. Oh,
2: absolutely. I mean, this this only happened because Biden really successfully used this to change the the subject to t- turf that is very fertile for, for Democrats, and it it really just shows that I mean this Rick Scott plan was not really ready for prime time. It, it's one of those things that maybe it it seems like it got cooked up in a think tank, and they didn't really think about what it would uh, be like when people really started to scrutinize it. One of the people who looked at that pretty early was McConnell, and basically said this thing. He, literally, he was literally like, it's going in the trash can. We are not doing this because... I think he tried very hard <laughs> to put it in the trash to- can, right? <laughs> yes. And it didn't quite... I mean, it was not... I don't know how we were supposed to know that all of those things were exempted except a, via mind reading, but it wasn't in the text. And now that it's in the text, it's a change.
4: And Rick Scott never said it. He was interviewed so many yes. times over this, he didn't say it. Yeah, Brianna, the, the direct line is actually, is actually not between the State of the Union address and this plan, but it's between... Rick Scott's 2024 re-election and this plan, and that's why I think he amended the plan, and that's what I think he's looking at is the fallout from all this, and then he's looking ahead to his re-election and saying, hey, look, i got to button this up. This could be a big problem for me in Florida. No state has more senior citizens than Florida, so it seems antithetical and, and kind of opposite of what you would think he would want to portray, right? Social Security is an important safety net and entitlement program and especially, especially in Florida.
1: What did you think of him saying it? Now, this never applied to Social
11: Security. Typical gaslighting. I mean, you know, I mean, and that was his only out, right, was to say, that's not what I meant. It was very Trumpian. It was very obvious what he was doing. But look, he's still going to be accountable for having said it, because guess what? He didn't just say it. It's on paper. Despite Mitch McConnell's best efforts to get rid of it, it's still out there.
1: Thank you guys so much for the conversation. (laughs) I appreciate it. And the roundtable continues on Inside Politics Sunday with Abby Phillip. That is Sunday morning at 8 Eastern and again at 11 here on CNN. We'll see you then, Abby. And ahead, the plan to create a court system for the wealthy and mostly white parts of Jackson, Mississippi, and separate from the system for the mostly black community. New video showing parts of the train wheels overheating on the Norfolk Southern train that derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, in the surveillance video, you can see there sparks, a bright light coming from the wheels 43 minutes before the train derailed. While NTSB investigates what caused the overheating, Ohio's governor this morning calling a waterway near the derailment, quote, severely contaminated. The governor says it will take a while to clean it up and encouraged anyone who has not yet had a private well tested to keep drinking bottled water. Concerns over drinking water are not limited to Ohio. The water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi is still a major ongoing problem. Back in August and September, residents had to wait in long lines for bottled water just to be able to drink, to cook, to brush their teeth when the city's main treatment plant failed. At times, the water pressure in Jackson is still low and boil water advisories are still frequent. Jackson's mayor is here with us now, Shokwe Antar Lumumba. Thank you, sir, so much for being with us. I do first want to play just a little bit of what the EPA administrator is promising folks in Ohio. He spoke to my colleague Jason Carroll. Here it is. Is someone going to be here a year from now, two years from now, to come back, test the water, test the soil? Uh, I'm I'm
3: very uh, clear when I say as long as it takes.
1: Knowing where things are for your community with their own disaster, if you were the mayor of East Palestine, would you believe that promise?
5: Uh, yes, I, I would only because I have the benefit of uh, an experienced relationship with Administrator Regan. I know that there is a significant uh, you know path ahead of, of restoring confidence to the residents, uh, that there is long- term safety with respect to the environment. And, you know, the experience that I had with Administrator Regan is one where he committed to me that he would support the residents of Jackson and was able to accomplish that in a historic way. Uh, and so my prayers are with the mayor and the community. there in East Palestine uh, and they have solidarity in Jackson, Mississippi.
1: I really wanna ask you about something that could also affect Jackson. It's a Mississippi bill that would give the state control to appoint unelected judges and prosecutors for the part of your city where the vast majority of white residents live. And then the people who would make those appointments are also white, even though Jackson is 83 percent black. What is your reaction to this bill?
5: Uh, Well, I think that, you know, we would be less than honest if we called it anything other than racist. Uh, It is fraught with constitutional issues uh, and it is an attack on black leadership. Uh, it is brought under the Trojan horse of public safety, uh, but it is a district which is largely comprised of the areas that have the lowest crime rates. Uh, those judges not only would have the power, those unelected judges would not only have the power to hear criminal matters, but civil and chancery matters as well, which have nothing whatsoever to do uh, with crime and public safety. Uh, and so it it is, you know... Uh, It is it is truly an attack on black leadership.
1: In 2021, The Washington Post found that Jackson had the highest murder rate in the country, three times that of Chicago. Uh, Republicans argue this bill is meant to address the growing crime problem. What do you think will lower the crime rate?
5: Yeah, well, you know, they would first have to acknowledge the things that I just said. If your true intention is to deal with the crime rate, then you wouldn't choose the safest portions of the city. Uh, in order to create this district. Secondly, uh, there has been a deliberate indifference or a willful neglect of state leadership to support the things that we've been asking for, things that help support our police department technology, uh, ballistics technology that help them close cases, connect uh, guns to prior crimes, uh, support of our real-time command center, which is a 21st century technology that supports our police officers, support in the vein of credible messenger and violence interruption training uh, that we've been asking for. Where the state has been neglectful, uh, we've had organizations like the National League of Cities and Wells Fargo Bank to step up to the plate and provide resources so that we can start an Office of Violence Prevention and Trauma Recovery. Uh, Jackson residents, uh, those of us who work on these issues every day know what we need. And what we don't need is a takeover of our city. and a plan in order to protect uh, the most densely white uh, populated portions of our city.
1: The bill sponsor, who is uh, Representative Trey Lamar, he represents a rural area quite far from Jackson. He says, quote, my constituents want to feel safe when they come here. Where I am coming from with this bill is to help the citizens of Jackson. What's your reaction to that?
5: Well, my reaction is first, Trey Lamar uh, has not done his due diligence to neither, to either talk to me, any other leadership in Jackson, or the residents of Jackson. Uh, I even find individuals who live within the proposed district who are opposed to it, uh, both Democrat and Republican, uh, some that, that are opposed to this court system and know uh, the lack of equity and, and justice that, that it sets the stage for. Uh, And so, you know, while it is his capital city and everyone's capital city, it is our home uh, and we will be the most the most adversely affected by these decisions. Uh, And and so once again, it's a Trojan horse uh, in order to take over, seize power where it cannot be seized electorally. They want to pass policy uh, that can take over our city.
1: Mayor, thank you so much. We'll be watching to see what happens with this Mississippi bill. And we appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. Ahead when even the hospital is not safe, the remarkable operations doctors are pulling off in the middle of an earthquake disaster zone. In our world lead, 11 days after the 7.8 magnitude earthquake in Syria and Turkey, nearly 44,000 people are dead as rescues from the rubble become more improbable and remarkable by the day. Like 33-year-old Mustafa pulled from a collapsed hospital today in Hatay, Turkey, his friend was shocked to hear his voice. CNN's chief medical correspondent, Sanjay Gupta, is in Turkey, where hospitals rendered useless by the quake are forcing doctors to get creative.
7: You are watching an operation on 35-year-old Hassan Gocher He has two fractures in his femur. And these doctors are working intently to stabilize the bone. Just watching this, you probably can't tell where this operation is actually taking place. Just to give you an idea, we're in a tent in the middle of a parking lot outside the hospital in a quake zone, and they're doing orthopedic surgery here.
8: Is that Dr. Gupta? Yes, it is. Oh, my gosh. Good to
7: see you. How are you doing? This is Dr. Greg Hellworth, an orthopedic surgeon from Indiana who flew over as soon as he heard about the earthquake. Right now, Dr. Hellworth is worried about bleeding. So over here, in another part of the tent, they have found Hassan's brother to be a match and have him hooked up and quickly donating. A true blood brother. In the middle of a natural disaster, you do whatever it takes to save a life. What would have happened to someone like him if he didn't have this operation?
8: I've worked in places before where people like this don't have the operation. They lay at home, languish. Some of them would get bed sores, blood clots, pneumonia, and maybe die from that.
7: Before the earthquake, Hassan would have likely gotten his operation here, at this hospital in Antakya in southern Turkey. It's still standing on the outside, yes, but completely wrecked inside. No longer functional.
4: This hospital destroyed, so there's no other place to seek care. So it's not just about the broken bones and the crush injuries, it's about these patients also. Supply chain's a real challenge.
7: This is the team from Samaritan's Purse. Elliot Tenpenny right. is an ER
4: doctor from North Carolina. We have had aftershocks, 4, 5.0, and it sways the tents back and forth and knocks things over, but nothing major. So all the work that
7: you need to do can still be done. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Over just 36 hours, they put up all these tents, set up generators, communication dishes, even brought their own water purifiers.
4: We have, we use this machine here, it's a reverse osmosis machine. It allows us to get it from anywhere including the ocean and do desalination if we want to. And then
7: you just keep it in these bladders and it's it's in use. Then these look full, so you this is a process constantly happening. That's right. All of this so mm-hmm. they're able to That's give great. the best care to their patients. Oh, like one-year-old Mamet his mother, Salsan, glued to his side, telling us her story through a translator. And what was happening to him?
6: He
0: couldn't breathe
7: anymore. She thought he had the flu the past few days, but things got worse this morning. Maybe from the fumes. As many people have been doing, they were burning plastic to stay warm. The diagnosis? Bronchitis and asthma. So severe, he was put on anesthetic gases to open up his airways and keep him alive. Hassan is alive as well, recovering with his brother's blood providing sustenance. 10. Care, plus prayers, is giving these patients hope, and an entire community devastated with loss, a lifeline. Brianna, I've got to tell you, I've, I've covered so many of these disasters, and obviously they are so tragic, but you do see people rising up and, as you say, being creative to try and save lives. Baby Mehmet, who you just saw there, is doing well. Uh, we got some photographs. I don't know if you, ha- you can see those, Brianna, but people were holding him, keeping his airways open. He was actually flown to a, a different trauma center, and we understand he's, he's expected to make a good recovery That's the kind of care that can be provided in a tent, in a parking lot, in the middle of a quake zone when people actually rise to the occasion, Brianna.
1: Yeah, we see those photos. What amazing work that is being done there. Thank you, Sanjay, for bringing us that story. And this Sunday on State of the Union, Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Mike McCall and Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Turner... Plus, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. And an exclusive interview with Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio that is all Sunday at 9 Eastern and again at noon here on CNN. I'm Brianna Keeler in for Jake Tapper. Our coverage continues after a short break with Pamela Brown in for Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room.